Welcome into the Monday Morning Cornerback Podcast. This is Eric McKinney, joined by Daryl Rideau. Daryl, still, uh, still kind of buzzing about that USC performance against Stanford uh, on on late Saturday night, um, forty-five twenty. I, I don't know how many people sort of saw that performance coming from USC true freshman quarterback Keaton Slovis, and really. The defense in the second half, it, it was one of those kind of USC performances that you hadn't seen in a while. And, and that when you think about USC football over the last, you know, 10, 12, 15, 20 years, you, you got kind of used to them putting that momentum together and putting teams away. Hadn't seen it for a while. That is absolutely what we saw against Stanford. What, what were your sort of big picture takeaways uh, from, from that win for USC? Well, Eric, I, I can certainly say that, you know, going into that game, I was somewhat optimistic that USC could pull out a victory, but I thought that they would struggle against it. But after experiencing what I witnessed in the Coliseum, along with you and, and the many others that, that uh, decided to make that trip uh, to the Coliseum, my coffee tasted a lot better the next day. My bacon smelled better, and, and the toast, the day-old toast, didn't quite taste as still as it did uh, the week after when I was trying to figure out who is this USC team, in particular defensively, becoming. But I, I tell you, watching them and witnessing Graham Harrell at work as an offensive coordinator got me to appreciate just the basics getting back to the fundamentals and having a game plan that you can actually implement and that adapts to the flow of the game, the texture of the game. I missed that over the years and I'm getting spoiled by what we're seeing because with every little nuance that we're seeing displayed on the field, whether it's a personnel adjustment or it's a, as simple as the, the poise and character that we're seeing from a true freshman that doesn't seem to be overwhelmed by the moment. Rather, he's checking down, um, dumping off to a running back out of the backfield, hitting quick slants in stride and rhythm, throwing speed outs. I didn't see these route concepts over the last few years. And that is a slight against the, the previous offensive um, coaching staff because it was so complex that it took away the pure essence of football that we're now appreciating with the quality and explosive talent that USC has. Once they started to figure out the way that Stanford was attacking them and Stanford threw many different looks at them, whether it was uh, two high safeties, they mixed in a little bit of zone and, and man techniques against USC to try to really disrupt the timing. Um, we saw Stanford go into cover two clouding the corners on the edges. And then we saw them run quarter-quarter halves. We also saw them flip post and Adebo to try to find the matchups. And because USC is so deep, Eric, at the receiver position, it didn't matter where they put Adebo because there were so many other matchups that USC took advantage of. And it doesn't go any further than just the brilliance of Graham Harold and, and this coaching staff understanding that they would have the matchups that they wanted by putting Drake um, London at, at the slot position where they would normally perhaps feature a tight end, taking advantage of his 6'5 uh, his frame, but knowing that he's a receiver would be matched up on a linebacker, and they took advantage of that. 
what, what would you attribute that chemistry between him and Slovis? Because that seemed to really calm Slovis down. Yeah, during fall, you saw Keaton Slovis and Drake London really develop that chemistry you talked about. And, and it wasn't something where, you know, oh, because Keaton was going with, with the twos and threes all the time. The, the quarterbacks always – they, they seem to take the same number of reps with the ones as the twos. And, and you had, you know, guys kind of taking reps everywhere with, with no real set pattern. I mean, obviously the coaches knew when guys were going to go with who, but it, it did feel like when Keaton was on, it was going to Drake London a lot. So, so it is not surprising a that, that Drake is seeing time out there and B that Keaton found him early that, that play that kind of got things going second play of the game where Drake had that catch and then that big long run. Uh, I think that sort of speaks to, to his ability as a wide receiver, their chemistry. Right. And the other thing that I take from that is you heard so much Graham Harrell talking about this offense is simple. It is simple to install. It's just about reps. You've got a true freshman who stepped in and played the way he played at quarterback. You've got Drake London, another true freshman who can come in and make an impact. Uh, you've got a grad transfer in Drew Richmond on the offensive line who came in. Th th he was not here, you know, in the spring. This, is, this guy does not have a ton of reps uh, in this system. But he comes in. He grabs a starting, a starting spot. Yep. Again, he's played a lot of football. But I think it does speak to how quickly guys can get comfortable in this offense. And then it just says, hey, go play. And, and you see – when you can take advantage of USC's natural ability with basically anybody who ever comes to right. USC to play football, they have that. When you can take advantage of, you can get on the field now uh, because you can grasp this offense. I think you see so many guys capable of contributing early and contributing in a big way where it's just do the thing that you can do really well. And I think that we've seen that against Stanford. I, I'm curious to see uh -huh. BYU. I, I don't want to flip yeah. our conversation all the way to moving forward right now, but I think this Stanford game gives you, um, I don't want to say an elevated sense of what the offense can do because I actually, and we, we talked about this a little bit after the game, you, you don't think that this is as much as the offense can do. You think there's another level. For, for I, I do. And, and here, here's where I want to go with that. And I'm glad you brought up the point of simplicity, because oftentimes when we think of something being simple, we think of a pamphlet or a brochure. We don't think of an unabridged, you know, dictionary, so to speak, of terminology and concepts. But the truth is when, and I've been in many different systems from when I first got to USC in 1999 under the likes of a Paul Hackett and a Bill Young, uh, defensive, former defensive coordinator at USC, Bill Young, who spent many years in Oklahoma State. I'm not sure where he's at now, but the point that I'm making is when a system is over complex, as we've seen in um, USC experience over the last few years, you find yourself trying to recall and remember what your job is. And the more you're in your head, the less you're seeing of the field. So when we hear that Graham Harrell implements an offense that simplifies things, what that tells me is that allows for players when they say you're just going to go out and play. What that really means is you don't have to worry about what the play is and what it's asking of you. Now you're starting to think about, okay, I know where I need to be, 
but where's the window? Where's the pocket? You start looking at the defense and, and focusing on how they're adjusting to the movement of the offense, as opposed to you being in your own head as a player at the receiver position, wondering, okay, am I supposed to run a slant or am I supposed to run a crossing route on this play? No. Um, there was a concept that you said Graham Harrell uses um, in the past. He talked about um, identifying or looking for the pockets where there's grass. In other words, get away from the defender, position yourself location-wise where you and the quarterback are seeing the same thing. And I think it's because of these reps, Eric, that, that uh, all the quarterbacks had, where at one point I was kind of criticizing that, but it proved to be pay dividends in the fact that it prepared Slovis to be ready um, with regardless of what receiver was out there. We saw a timing and a chemistry that could only be manufactured, that could only be demonstrated with reps. And those reps you can attribute came all throughout camp, even though um, the coaches had an idea that JT Daniels would be initiate, initially the starter. It was important that all the quarterbacks were prepared to implement this system. And Slovis benefited more than anybody else from those reps. Yeah, I, I think Keaton sort of exemplified that take what the defense is giving you. That there were some that there were some phenomenal throws. Dro you know, dropping the one in, the touchdown pass to Amon Ross St. Brown. He's not gonna get credit for for the one to Tyler Vaughn's because Vaughn's couldn't come up with it, but in the corner of the end zone, that ball is put, I mean, it, exactly where that ball needs to be. Uh, another one uh, where he hit, where, where Paulson Debo looked like he was going to go for the interception, just yep. outside of him. Uh, I believe Tyler Vaughn's got on the, on the end of that and then could turn it upfield a little bit uh, right. for, for some extra yards. One to Michael Pittman down the sideline where Pittman makes a, a good play. One to Tyler Vaughn's down the sideline where he makes a good play. It, it just – when you hear Graham Harrell and Clay Helton talking about Keaton Slovis, and we saw it in spring, when it was maybe the first or second practice of spring ball, and we said, that, that kid can play. If somebody had asked me, oh, is he going to play this year as a true freshman, not a chance. There is no way that he will be ready for that. But you absolutely saw what he could do. And and Graham Harrell and Clay Helton, they saw it right away. You you know, talking to the players after the game, they saw it right away. He has he has something about him. And one of the things that stood out to me that was interesting in hearing guys talk about him this fall before the season started was that JT Daniels took a lot of flack for a perceived lack of leadership last year. Right. And this was a talking this was it was not a secret. This is a talking point. For a lot of the coaches in the spring, that was one of the things they wanted to see from JT through spring, over the summer, into fall, working on his, on his leadership. I remember Michael Pittman in the fall comparing Keaton Slovis to JT Daniels just in terms of being sort of more of a quiet guy, uh, more reserved, that yeah, sort of thing. Introverted, thing, you know. What's that? Yeah, kind of an introvert. Right. But one thing you don't hear now, and maybe it's, you know, when you play like that, you don't have to really say anything. But Keaton Slovis, he did step up. He did talk um, when, when things were kind of going south toward the beginning of that Stanford game. And there is, there is something about his personality. It felt like, uh, you know, with Stanford, 
the, the, when, when you get down 14-3 and you fumble that ball, that sure felt a lot like maybe a game was going to play out like it would have last year, where you just yeah. kind of go in the tank and you can't get back up. Yep. Something happened with this team. And I don't know if it's all Keaton Slovis at quarterback. Obviously, it, you know, it, it's not just him. People have to respond and, and other guys have to play. But it, it sure feels like there's something about him at quarterback that helps, that, that helps lead right. uh, the, the team. With it, Eric, I want, I want to chime in on something that you said. I, I do want to chime in on something that you said um, because it does speak. Like, players know. You know, coaches sometimes can try to window dress, but players know when they have a natural born leader and they don't. And they're not going to just empower someone who doesn't deserve the role. And what I mean by that is, and again, this is no slight on JT because he is a phenomenal talent, but sometimes um, your demeanor doesn't always click with a team that is heading in a certain direction. And when the team did not vote JT Daniels as a captain, it was not necessarily an indictment on JT as much as I saw it as they felt like the competition in that quarterback room was closer than perhaps indicated, that he wasn't the clear-cut leader in his own room. And sometimes you don't have to be the most vocal leader but it's your body language. It's, it's how you embrace the challenge. And that's what we saw with Keaton Slovis. And I remember we were in camp and it might've even been spring. And I was asked like, man, why is this kid getting more reps? He's probably not even gonna play. I thought Jack Sears, Matt Fink was gonna step up, but you spoke to, nah, he's, he does what Graham Harrell wants him to do, which is he's probably better at hitting intermediate routes. That's what this offense asks for. It doesn't ask for um, someone to go out and play hero ball. You got so much talent around you that it simply needs you to facilitate. But he's, he's more than a facilitator. He can actually make plays. He can actually set things up. And this offense really is designed to break its own tendencies. And one play that really stands out to me, Eric, was I think it was uh, Stephen Carr's touchdown. He was actually lined up on the right side. And then they put Michael Pittman junior on the on on the um opposite side which was kind of like the nub side well he came down and cracked on a linebacker the corner was in man coverage so the corner came down with them wiped himself out of the play but usc didn't show a lot of that uh of that counter play where slovis handed the ball off to Carr, and Carr had a short soft edge the reason why i find that to be crucial is because um when you're dealing with the freshman, to put him in a position where now he has to come across his body on a handoff, because literally Carr is right next to you. So you, you literally have a half a second to possess the ball and then put it in his belly. And Slovis' body, his mechanics and his demeanor, understanding what's asked and expected of him, allow for that play to happen. Because even after he handed off the ball, he still followed through with his mechanics faking like he threw the ball. It's just those little subtle things that you can appreciate from someone who has as prepared as he was. Yeah, I, I think one of the other things that you have to appreciate is the offensive line. And, and nobody, you know, the offensive line, when it comes to, you know, media coverage and, and talking points after the game, 
you're you're a little bit like the long snapper. You know, if if you didn't mess up in a huge way, people are going to talk about the skilled guys. They're the ones scoring the touchdowns. They're the ones you know moving the ball. I, for the the questions that we had about the offensive line coming into the season. I think have been answered regardless of what happens the rest of the way. This was something where you thought, how is this going to work? Are they going to give the quarterback, you know, any amount of time? Is there going to be any kind of running game? I thought the two short touchdowns from Vavai Malapai being able to run the ball straight up the middle, close to the goal line. You know, these are not fourth and one situations where Stanford had 11 guys, you know, right on top of the center, but Yep. The ability to do that, that is absolutely something that people have to respect. And now you're working, you know, one-on-one matchups outside. Anything where you can sort of give a little bit of an advantage to your wide receivers, I think is good. And it proves USC, I think this year, is going to run the ball as much as they have to. I don't think they're looking yeah. to go out and say, you know, we want to run the ball 45 times in this game. But it does show a willingness to keep the ball on the ground, keep defenses honest and have, you know, that balance that you need. It's still going to, it's still going to tip towards the passing game. Um, But I think what the offensive line has been able to do in both the running game and the passing game so far through two games has been a, a very, very positive sign. You know, and, and again, this is something that goes undervalued or underrated. Uh, Brett Nealon being a true center, a savant, very cerebral. When you're talking about starting a true freshman and having to identify fronts, can you imagine the the pressure that the coaches staff might have had um, if if they were asking him and a, a true freshman, I mean a, a new starter at the center position to have to identify those fronts and put the the offense in a position to be successful last year, you know, but because of the simplicity of what is being asked of them allows for everyone to see the same thing. And I go back to that, but, but because this offense is so explosive and they're so loaded at the receiver position, I do think that it does require some buy-in from Vavai Malapai and, um, and Stephen Carr. They have to be dialed in and they have to be all in on the fact that at any given point, their number can be called. Although they may not be a feature going into the game plan, they can certainly impact the game. The same way that we saw on on first downs when um, Vavai was running the ball and he ran it with authority and that created, you know, second and and, uh, medium or second and short situations. It changed the whole complexity of the rhythm of the offense. So while they're not, you know, toting the, um, the rock the way that they've done in years past, where the offense was kind of featured around the running game, they are certainly as significant or important in the overall scheme of what things, um, what this team wants to get accomplished. And I think because they bought in and they're being unselfish, that's why um, this offense is really scratching the surface. The reason why I made that comment to you that I don't think that we've seen the best of this offense is because the the running game is just scratching the surface on how good it can be behind a Jalen McKenzie and a Drew Richmond. I think the addition of those two on the right side of that line is the athleticism that they bring and the, the anger and the ferocity that they play with, I think 
is going to be the difference in terms of how far this team can actually go. You, you, you mentioned buy-in, and I wanted to get your thoughts on this, specifically as someone who, who had played at SC. We, we heard so much over the offseason, more people bought in, everybody bought in. You know, the, the, this is what the players said over and over, we bought in, whether it was strength and conditioning, whether it was spending time together, you know, outside of football activities, whether it was on the practice field, uh, we bought in, we bought in, we bought in. It feels like, you know, specifically in the Stanford game, but you also saw it in, in the Fresno State game too, it feels like guys are playing for more than themselves. It feels like guys ha- are playing and they know if I run this route well, that could get somebody else open. If I, you know, the, the running backs yeah. have kind of thrown themselves totally into, you know, into pass blocking. They know if they pick this up, something's going to happen. And eventually that's going to get back around where they're going to get the ball. Um, the, you know, defense is kind of rallying. It, it looks, you know, a little bit different on the sideline. How, as a player, how in Infectious is it, and, and really, how important is it to buy in? And I guess maybe even doing it, you know, months in advance of of the season. And then once that happens, how how easy is it to to kind of allow that to continue, kind of picking up momentum throughout right. the season? It, it, the the buy in truly starts from the top down. Okay. It's very difficult as a coach to sell a player wolf tickets. Tell them that we're competing for a national championship when you, when you provide us as players with inferior information or the deliverer of that information is inferior. And what I mean by that is you can't coach me as a, a defensive back on, from a technique standpoint unless you've played the game or you've bought into coaching that position. Last year, there were so many coaches coaching out of position that it was hard for the players to buy into the message that was being conveyed because it didn't seem genuine and authentic. So what does Clay Helton do? He improves the staff and he brings in teachers. So the players are getting instant gratification, instant feedback from the the subtle adjustments that are being asked of them from a coaching standpoint. The greatest illustration I can provide you is this last year we watched greg johnson eric struggle mentally just just really never felt comfortable in his body language show this year he's been asked to play the slot that's a very scary position for a corner to be in when you're a corner you're either taking away a left side or right side when you're playing in the slot a position that i played you're covering you're giving a, a player three directions he can go straight up through you or around you and juke you so you have to trust. But his relationship, Greg um, um, Johnson's relationship with Greg Burns is incredible. Watching him receive that information and how it transferred on the field. In the game um, against Stanford, uh, Coach Burns told um, Greg uh, um, to just slow down. You know, you're over committing, you're jumping the routes. If you sit on Kobe Parkinson, if you sit and you hang and you undercut his route, you'll position yourself for an interception. Greg bought into that. I wouldn't have thought he would bought in last year when he was second guessing and questioning every move. But like you talked about, it becomes infectious when, oh, wow, you know, coach told me to do this and look at what the results paid off for. Now, all of a sudden, he becomes the first person in the weight room the next morning. You know, they're spending more time studying 
nobody's tapping out just trying to you know get out of practice which we used to call work buddies guys that you know in between the clock they were there the moment that the uh, the whistle uh, rang they were the first ones to jet out boy i tell you i used to hate work buddies i love guys that you know they didn't pay attention to the clock they were ish guys they weren't i mean dot guys they stuck around longer um you know whether it was three ish o'clock they didn't care because they weren't looking at the clock micromanaging that that's what we're seeing now we're seeing guys buying in because they know what the opposite felt like they don't want that feeling again and i that's why i just think that this group is scratching the surface the more that they are rewarded for the work that they're putting in and the uh the in-game adjustments that are being made the more confidence that they have in whatever the coaches call they can make it work I'm going to let you keep going with with the defensive backs because we'll we'll flip over and and take a look at the defense. Uh, Elijah Griffin is a guy who you, not you, 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 everybody expected a lot from this season because there was so little experience, and he really did show some flashes last year. And and it seemed unfair when. He doesn't participate in spring ball at all as he's recovering from two shoulder surgeries. But you still, everybody kind of just penned him in as he's a starting cornerback and he is, he has to be the guy this season because there is, you know, almost no experience behind him. And he brought very little experience even himself. This isn't a, a redshirt junior with, you know, 20 starts under his belt. Uh, that, that's coming into this year, but Clay Helton specifically mentioned it, and we talked about it a little bit too. Maybe the plays of the game in terms of starting that turnaround, Stanford recovers the fumble, and they take two shots. In those three plays, they take two shots at Elijah Griffin, yeah. and he comes up big uh, with, with two yeah. pass breaks up. At that point, if I'm a Stanford fan, let, you know, let's run the ball on this, but, but they decided to throw – and they wanted to take advantage of, you mentioned, that the big tight end, Kobe Parkinson. Uh, Griffin comes up big there, forces the, the field goal, and then it is, yep. it is all USC from there out. Elijah Griffin wound up with four pass deflections in that game. And, and just he, he did play like that guy that you really hoped that USC could, could slot in at one corner. Uh, I'm curious your thoughts about kind of what you saw from him and, and then really uh-huh. the, uh, the, the secondary as a whole. Okay. I, I love this part of the story because, you know, as a former defensive back, I, I'm deeply invested in out of every position in what happens coming out of the secondary. Elijah Griffin, of course, is the son of Warren G. Okay. And Warren G is from Long Beach, grew up around them, grew up listening to his music, uh, him and Snoop um, in the dog pound. Okay. But Elijah went to Mission Viejo, deep in Orange County, where perceivably guys who moved to Orange County can get soft. You, you get comfortable with your surroundings. But Elijah Griffin is no thug, no gangster. And I'm never going to put that title on him. But he has a swag about him. He has a moxie about how he goes about his business and he embraces every challenge because he sees great receivers in practice. He sharpens his game and he holds his own in practice. So when he goes up against a Kobe Parkinson at six, seven, two fifty, I remember talking to him after the game, when we were interviewing him uh, coming out of the locker room, he surprised himself 
about how he could elevate his game and contend against a six, seven receiver, because it really does take a fortitude, a certain uh, gravitas to be able to psych yourself out that you're not at a heighted disadvantage. What is Elijah Griffin, maybe six one. Sure. At best six foot six one, somewhere around there. Yeah. Yeah. Going up against a a six, six, seven tight end. Exactly. But it's because he plays with so much swag, regardless of what happened before then, whether, you know, personal foul, those plays don't seem to matter. And as much as guys want to psych themselves out and say that uh, the next play doesn't impact uh, uh, a mistake on a play doesn't impact the next, that is not true. It's the emotions of that play, good or bad, that carries over to the next play that impacts your body language and how you prepare. But because he has so much confidence in his preparation and his skill set of the game that there is no question in the coach's minds and the players' minds that he was that alpha. He was that dog. For me, Eric, I saw it last year against Arizona State. He had to be on the right side. The left side, the receiver broke loose, and I watched him take a beeline. And he hustled and sprinted across the field maybe 50 yards and stopped the, the, um, the offensive player from scoring right before. That play goes overlooked, but his hustle, something that shows up on film. And in this game, when this team, who is you know, truly trying to identify itself or create an identity defensively, that secondary embraces his swag. And they play with that kind of attitude, that challenge. And he is rubbing off on um, Isaac Taylor Stewart. ITS is benefiting from not being in his own head. Greg Johnson is, is benefiting from the swagger that OG plays with. The safeties can appreciate that because now they can cheat in the box, knowing that in man coverage, these are guys that will contend and that can hold their own. And they're ball sharks. you got to love that about that. And it does start with number two, Elijah Griffin. But what'd you think about the front seven? This was a group, you know, Stanford was not bringing their best offensive linemen. Uh, and and Stanford has certainly taken a step back from those kind of early, you know, 2011, 2012, those years, those offensive lines. But this is still an offense that can give you problems if you are not up to the task physically. And, and I thought, especially once you heard USC coaches after the game talk about, we made a few adjustments when they gave up some some big runs early, and and they shut them down. I'm not a huge fan of you know taking out uh, stats that an opponent puts up to kind of make the stats look better, but it is something you know. Cameron Scarlett had that 44 yard run. If you take that away. He goes 16 carries for 38 yards the, the rest of the game for that. And, and this is, you know, we talked about Fresno State kind of hit USC uh, around the edges on the side, but up the middle, they had nothing. So this is really two weeks in a row, again, outside of kind of that, that bust where things just open up uh, for Scarlett up the middle on that long run. But this is something where I think you've seen improved play from the front seven and again yeah. – like you talked about with the offense, it feels like as as EA and as some of these guys get more comfortable, you know, in what they're being asked to do and, and being on the field, that they're going to start playing, you know, more freely and, right. and with more, right. uh, you know, uh, 
just kind of they, they bring that sort of physical prowess. I, the, the one thing I liked about EA especially, he had a couple plays where Stanford pulled linemen and tried to get outside, and EA just took it to the linemen. He, he did not wait to absorb a block. He's Relentless. hitting linemen back into the running back. It, it looked like he maybe picked the wrong gap on that, that big, long run upside. So that is something that he's yeah. going to have to figure out. But we talked about a lot of these new coaches. If you make a mistake, make it at 110 miles an hour. I mean, go right. hard all the time. And it feels like that's what this front seven is playing with. And they haven't made a ton of mistakes through two games. Again, it's we'll see what happens with some of these offenses coming up. But I think overall, with, with that front seven, how they've handled, you know, pass rush and against the run, again, I think you have to be happy. It's not Clemson's defensive line from last year. Um, but it's it's not the USC front from last year either that we've seen so right. far. Okay, so there, there's a lot to break down about this because the strength, the teeth, the heart and soul of USC's defense starts with Jay Tufele and Marlon uh, uh, Tulopo, Tupulo. Tui, Tui Pelotu. Tui Pelotu. There you go. Man, I should know these Polynesian names <laughs> a lot better than I do. Okay, but behind them, whether it's Brandon Peely or Nick Figueroa, I didn't really know what to expect from a Nick Figueroa, but I'm pleasantly surprised at what I'm seeing, you know? And, you know, just the fact that they have Connor Murphy, 6'7 frame, and he's morphing his body. You know, he's starting to chisel in. You've got Connor Murphy who can play, uh, you know, the, uh, as a DN, or you can move him inside and give him a wide load, a frame. It's the confidence that the coaching staff has. Um, and I think that it starts with uh, Clancy, uh, defense coordinator Clancy Pendergast, him trusting his coaches and the rotations that they have. In years past, they only ran, what, two subs? And guys were, were getting gassed. But it's because of the defensive line being stout and really kind of holding their own allows for this team to have a chance. Now, there's still some big plays, some explosive plays early in the game that they do have to figure out, in particular during the, the first 20 uh, 20 to 25 scripted plays that teams have, they need to figure out how to be the front seven, sound, gap sound, and play with gap integrity. Right now, we're seeing the two uh, linebackers really virtually playing in positions that, that they have to kind of become more comfortable with. John Houston has to continue to be comfortable as a natural middle linebacker because he's truly not a natural Mike linebacker vocalizing getting guys set up but he is such a cerebral player comes from a, a family full of football that it makes sense to have him calling plays when you talk about ea he may be a natural edge rusher in a three four system think of junior Seau coming off the edge or uh, like a willie mcginnis granted his body style it doesn't look like willie mcginnis but you got him playing inside where he has to read and react that's a lot for him to think about right now, considering it's only, what, his third official start. Granted, he showed up in other games. So this team will get better as the season progresses, and they start to play natural um, opponents. But right now, going up against a team like BYU, that poses so many different challenges that USC hasn't seen. But it's still that physical Polynesian style. When I think of a BYU team, I always think of a semi-pro team a team of older players, more mature players and savvy that may not be more athletic than USC, 
but will figure out ways to make adjustments. And that's where USC has to become smarter at the beginning of games, playing with gap integrity and sound so that they're not giving up those explosive plays that, you know, spot teams three to six, seven points. If they can do that and just kind of shore things up, you see as the game wears on and they kind of find their rhythm, they are a very productive and opportunistic defense. But we haven't seen the best of them yet because, quite frankly, they've been competing up until these last two games against an offense that can intimidate anybody, including have you second-guessing your own abilities in practice when you're constantly, you know, on the shorter end of some of these um, one-on-one matchups because of how talented USC's offense is. But as they start going up against these opponents and preparing and trusting that, you know, if they take care of their gap, that um, the next defender will be there to, to protect them, this team can become one of the, the, I think, a top 20 defense in the country. But if they keep giving up ex- explosive plays, it may not necessarily reflect in the stats, but it's going to be hard to score on these guys because they're so long and rangy um, the closer you get inside the red zone. You know, I want to get your thought. It, it was interesting to watch kind of these defensive line. I mean, they're, they're hockey line changes at, at times. Four guys coming in, four guys going out. You mentioned Connor Murphy, and that's a guy that, you know, I think USC fans have been waiting for a while. And, and certainly an example of sometimes it takes three or four years for, for things to really click. And, and you still have, you know, two, three years um, to, to, to make an impact going forward after that. How much, how, how much do you gain by playing? If you're on the field, how much does that help you? play well it feels like you know a lot of times with Clancy Pendergast in the past it's been you need to you know a hundred percent prove it in practice then you'll get on the game that you know that then you'll get in for a game but it also sometimes when guys just go in it feels like that actually you know progresses them a lot faster you know that than in practice well what is that kind of relationship like because it did feel like when Connor Murphy went in that game, he got, you know, better and better and better. We saw Hunter Eccles flash a little bit. And, and do you get sort of a boost just by actually playing, by, by, by having that rotation and by getting in on the field? Well, what, what I like about that, that rotation and the question that you're asking, Pete Carroll used to say it takes 27 days of repetitively doing something before it becomes a habit. And I internalize what that meant. Okay. The reason why I think that this coaching staff has settled in on hockey-like rotations is to keep the chemistry and continuity the same. When a Connor Murphy comes in and he knows that inside of him is a Nick Figueroa and a Brandon Peely, and he perhaps is on the left side of that defense, okay, he knows how Nick Figueroa is going to react because how he reacts in practice. Is he going to, like, for example, does he shoot gaps or will he hold up the, um, the interior offensive lineman and allow for uh, Connor Murphy to kind of, um, kind of brush off of his inside? Or is he someone who overshoots a gap? Now you have to adjust and overcompensate for that speed, for his get off. It's because of that. In practice, sometimes it's a controlled tempo that the coaches, it's, it's like a burst of, of um, energy And then all of a sudden the play stops. Well, in a game situation, you don't have to think about that. 
it's a constant um, repetitive motion and it feels like a two minute drill every play because of the tempo and speed of the game. You don't have time to think about what you're trying to analyze in practice because this is the test and competing against somebody else. Some players thrive under those circumstances because they feel like the leash is off of them, so to speak. And, um, and they can just go out and play freely. Connor Murphy's one of those players that just quite frankly, from circumstances, hasn't had the opportunity that he has now. And he's now showing why he was recruited by USC. And with every game, with every rep, he's becoming more and more comfortable. And with more film that the coaches have on him, they're going to understand more and more how to be able to utilize his skill sets to continue to put him in situations where it's going to be advantageous for this defense. So there is no substitute for game-like tempo and speed, and there's no substitute from being out there working alongside guys that you're comfortable with. Murphy may not be comfortable with the starters uh, in terms of a rotation. He may not understand how their body language is. So sticking with his rotation, at least now, is the best thing for this team because it doesn't appear to be a great drop-off when, when those rotations happen in the middle of series. Yeah, I, I think that that's an important point is that when you can send in, because we knew the starters up on the defensive line were going to be very good. But if you get that kind of production from those backups and you can sort of keep waves going at the offensive line, that's going to be huge, I think, for the rest of the season. But let's flip, last thing to kind of cover here, let's get into special teams a little bit. We've seen over two games kind of some some – big errors, some big plays. It's kind of been all over the place uh, in terms of special teams. What, what have you seen? What's kind of your thoughts about, A, what they've done so far, and B, what that unit is kind of capable of go, going forward? Here, here's the deal. In two areas, two facets, we see a team that is vastly improved, offensively and defensively. But special teams is the one play um, per game or the one phase of the game where you get you combine offense and defensive players alike and there's a common thread okay in years past John Baxter oversaw all duties that was special teams and maybe delegated some things okay but the attention to details was there now you take John Baxter and he's he's also sharing uh, you know his responsibilities as the tight end coach well, to me, that's an erosion of responsibility. You're now taking away the attention to details that we once saw. Example, you inadvertently have two number sevens on the field, okay? But then you know, you know. But then later in the game, you set your 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 kickoff return up for a Valus Jones hundred plus yard touchdown. But then you come back, and in the same game, the hero became, you know, someone who had an error in judgment and he fumbles or there's a penalty on the play. You know, it's little things like that that they have to clean up. And to me, it's it really comes down to want to and pride. And, and this is a team that is very capable of playing clean football. But for some reason or another, they've yet to put together three phases of the game that are all, all complementary. But the one thing I will say to this is Two areas that were problematic for me last year, the kicking game, you know, punt and punt coverage and um, place kicking. I don't have any problems with that. I think they have a terrific punter. And, you know, seeing um, Chase McGrath back, 
gives me the assurance that inside of 45, I think he's automatic. So it's the coverage games and it's the return games, in particular the skilled players, where I'm still like holding my breath. Like, don't try to be a hero about it. You know what I mean, Eric? Let's just possess the ball and get it back. Some of the things that I see with uh, Tyler Bonds concerns me. Playing around back there, you know, trying to be uh, evasive. Man, just secure the ball. You are so explosive offensively. We don't need hero ball. But when an opportunity comes, you'd like to see this team take advantage of it. But cleaning up those things in practice, I'd like to see that transfer into the game so that they could um, not have so many self-inflicting wounds. Sure. And then overall, I think with this team, kind of last point to get into here, that, that was such a good, you know, a feel-good win. Uh, over Stanford I, I think this program needed I think the players need. I think coach Helton needed it uh, Graham Harrell kind of needed to be able to kind of plant his flag and say that this is what the offense can look like I, I think it was so positive and at the same time I think there's still some we'll see to this program you, you just haven't seen yep. kind of the consistency where they can put back-to-back games like that now you're taking a true freshman on the road to a place that, you know, this is not Autzen Stadium. This is not up at, at Washington. Uh, it's not like you're going to a, an, an SEC stadium. But still, it, it's a BYU team that has, like you mentioned, some older players, guys that are kind of veteran football players. Uh, and, and it's not certainly an easy trip. Um, yeah. You know, that there's the elevation. There's all of that sort of stuff. What are you looking forward to? And kind of what are your expectations for the the team against BYU and, and really can they ha, have you seen enough from them to to know or to at least believe that mm-hmm. this is momentum that they can continue to to carry into next week and then beyond that well well let, let me say this as as excited and and um, inspired as I have become watching this team kind of find itself USC that is and from a quarter to by quarter basis show some signs of improvement in the Stanford game. I'm constantly being reminded that right before the Stanford game, there was the likes of a Fresno State game. And before I think that this Fresno State game was an anomaly or an aberration, I don't know enough. The sample size is too low. But what I can say is I am confident that in-game adjustments, this coaching staff has the ability to make those changes. And the confidence that I really have is in Keaton Slovis. And I can't believe I'm saying that about a true freshman. The reason why I like him on the road is because, in my opinion, the last game and a half have been road games for him. He's not a natural Californian. He is someone who wasn't highly recruited, or at least on our radar at WeRAC.com, as a highly touted um, quarterback. But he played in the state of Arizona came to USC. So he's always played away from home. And when you play in the Coliseum and you're from Arizona and it's not a natural environment for you, but you still thrive playing in that type of atmosphere, gives me the indication that you can go into the likes of a, of a, um, of a new state, play in Provost, BYU, and not be intimidated by the circumstances. But what I'd like to know, and we won't have that answer, is how does this coaching staff react being away from the, uh, the Coliseum? 
how will they call the game when things are chaotic, the crowd noise gets loud, and they reach the first set of adversity? Will we see Clay Helton take advantage of uh, timely times out, using them appropriately, focusing, knowing when to, to, to kill momentum if BYU gets off to a fast start and, and, you know, and settle his team down? There's so many questions, but this is a veteran, mature group of skilled players that I think that this team will maintain its composure, but I just want to see them play within themselves. And playing in the state of Utah hasn't been quite nice to USC over the course of, you know, um, Clay Helton's tenure, but that was against the Utah Utes. We're not talking them. BYU poses its own challenges offensively. They seen that the, over the last two games versus Utah and versus Tennessee, they got off to slow starts. But because this is an older group, they figure things out. They have a, a dynamic receiver in Micah Simon, who had probably, arguably, hit the best game of his career. Made some clutch catches against Tennessee to take them into double overtime and uh, position them for a field goal kick. But defensively, Isaiah um, Kufasi and Kavika. Uh, Fanoa, these are big interior defensive linemen and, and a linebacker in Isaiah um, Kofasu, Kofasi who can give USC problems. They're very aggressive. They can beat one-on-one -on -one battles. And this secondary at times features a nickel package like USC does can pose um, a lot of challenges because you may not know where guys are going to end up as they mix and match and intertwine and try to rob and take away, um, you know, hot routes, you know, quick slants and outs. I expect them to play like a man under two deep and try to rob those under routes and force USC to have to beat them up the field or through the slots. This is going to be the greatest challenge so far in this young career. And we're going to see, can they build off of USC, build off of the momentum in the second half shutout that we saw against Stanford. But the timing of this trip is good for this team that needs to get away from the Coliseum feeling good about themselves and just really kind of rally around one another and, and, and really just, just feel like it's them against the world. Kind of stay in that little pocket, in that bubble, and, and grow off of the success that they're having on a quarter-by-quarter -quarter basis. Yeah, so, still some questions to answer for the team and really the work just getting started in, in this rough stretch this rough opening stretch of the season I mean after BYU uh that that triple hit you know Utah at Washington at Notre Dame that there's still a lot of work for this team to do but coming out of Stanford that I, I can't imagine this program feels you know could, could possibly have felt better about itself at this point you know when you thought about how things could play out at the beginning of the season this was a win against Stanford again we mentioned this program, each individual player, each coach, each, you know, a, a analyst on the staff, everybody affiliated with the program, that was a win that they needed. And I think that there's a chance that this kind of spins things forward and puts USC on track for a season that I, I don't know how many people expected, um, A, 2-0, and and 2-0 and with that win against Stanford to look the way it did. So we'll see how things play out this week and then obviously against you know on a tough trip to BYU but at this point uh, a lot of smiles I'm sure around that USC program and, and you know for people that wanted to see that USC program do well this year so 
For Dale Riddell, this is Eric McKinney. Thanks for listening to the We Are SC Podcast Monday Morning Cornerback.